This is from the bookshelves of Forbes India. I'm your host, Divya Shekhar. As a bipolar woman, I have lived much of my life in a constant state of becoming someone else. This is the opening line of Terry Cheney's 2008 modern love essay for the New York Times. Cheney, author of the book Manic: A Memoir, describes living with bipolar disorder as being at the mercy of spectacular mood swings where she's up for days charming talkative effusive funny and productive but never sleeping then down essentially immobile for weeks at a time our guest today aparna piramal raje identifies with cheney her new book part memoir and part self help guide is all about life in the face of mental health challenges. Aparna Piramal Raje comes from a prominent business family. She's a writer, columnist, public speaker, educator, and in her own words, happy, thriving, and bipolar. So to begin, here's Aparna giving us a glimpse into her life and the inner workings of her mind as described in her book Chemical Khichdi. January 2012 a factory outside Chandigarh my colleague and i are traveling to the family's office furniture factory outside Chandigarh thoughts are buzzing in my head like irritating bees so much so that i need to rush to the privacy of my hotel room and spit them out into my voice recorder before i even make it to the factory i am back in the family business looking after marketing and trying to turn it around My mother is keen on selling the business and a family friend and advisor wanted my help to improve its valuation for the sale but the landscape has completely altered since my previous tenure my former colleagues have left margins have dwindled and the world has had an economic meltdown i am trying to combine family life with a toddler and an infant freelance writing and a business turnaround it is a lot to take on and sleep slips away So my mind responds in the only way it knows it rebels. I remember this manic web episode vividly. Mania ascended with frightening familiarity. The physical symptoms were immediate indicators: a wired body, struggling to sleep for more than a few hours, and the constant adrenaline. It is always physically grueling, and that's when the words and thoughts started emerging. First like butterflies released from a net, light and delicate, but ending up like a dagger. plunged into one's back brutal bloodied and relentless the mind became the mind field thank you for joining us at our studio in mumbai thank you thank you divya for having me so you know one of the first things that uh, i'd like to ask you about is that in the book you mention how one of the reasons that it's taken you a decades to acknowledge that you have bipolar disorder is that uh, you did not want the label of being someone with bipolar disorder what what was it about it that you feared or what was it that you did not want to acknowledge and what what was the process like for you I think I was diagnosed um, in my mid twenties, actually, when it was there was a discussion that I could be bipolar, or maybe I was borderline. And at that time, it really felt that the way it was being positioned to me by the medical fraternities was that you know this was a lifelong condition. I may not be able to get married, have children, may not able to have a career. I'd be on medication, so it was really positioned to me as a life sentence. You know, and I don't think at that age you're prepared to accept that. 
that. It's much easier to not acknowledge it. Um, and it was only later when I realized that it's possible to actually have a condition like that and live a, the life that you want to. What was the trigger to get started with this book? You have described the multitude of thoughts that you've had even before you started writing this book and, you know, leading to your doctor saying you are overstimulated, so you just need to take it easy. What did it take to start writing this book and why did you decide to do it? I think... Um Writing is how I make sense of the world. I mean, you meet with a lot of authors in, in your series also. So I think a lot of writers and authors, that's how we make sense of the world. And when I was diagnosed about 18 months after that, um, I wrote a note saying um, 10 things I've learned about being bipolar. And I shared that with my ecosystem and my book club. And they thought, the book club particularly thought that it could be a template for a book. So I thought that this is, you know, ways for me to get insight into my condition and then maybe ways for, to help other people with it. But I think truthfully, I think we all want to share our story as writers. Um, I think the expression now is let's own our truth, <laughs> you know. So I think it's part of, it's just part of that. Could you talk about the role that your family has played in your mental health journey, particularly you meant, you talk a lot about your sister Radhika Paramal and your mother Geeta Paramal. So what is the role that you've, uh, apart from your husband and your in-laws as well, so how has your family, you know, supported you through this journey and what are the changes that they've themselves experienced along the way? That's a great question. Um, I think that, um, you know, I like to say in the book that mental health is a team sport. And um, they've really been like this people on my team, you know, who've just been really supporting me. And they work together as a team because it's quite difficult for one person to take on the load of managing somebody with a mental health condition. So, for example, when I'm feeling manic or, you know, the, like the incident I just described, I might have to go to my sister's house or my mother's place or go somewhere else for a few days. Somebody else would take over the owners of looking up after the kids and the family. So everybody sort of plays a role and they kind of support each other. And so I think it's a team sport for them also to be able to have each other as, uh, uh, you know, team members supporting each other. Um, and I think generally I've been in a really good place for the last four years for more than that. There haven't been any incidents. Um, but I, I think it is... Uh, times have been there have been very stressful times for them um, there have been times uh, where really you know I, it, it has been difficult for, for them to deal with my mood swings but I also think that what we've sort of evolved as a, over a period of time is that it's become very normalized in my family like when we talk of mental health we talk of triggers or counseling or doctors or any of these things it's a very very normalized conversation you know and I think I, I hope it's led to greater empathy also one important point that you make in the book is about privilege and where you say that, you know, privilege insulates you many a times from stigma and also makes it easier for you to access help and build the kind of network or support system that, you know, you might need. And your friend in the book says that there's also another side to it wherein families, especially prominent wealthy families, like to bury their heads in the sand like ostriches when it comes to mental health because there is still a huge stigma around it and it's barely spoken about. So how does this play out in those social settings? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I met one of my first psychiatrists. I ran into him in a restaurant in a hotel and I just waved to him and raised my hand and said hello. And he didn't acknowledge me. And then I went to him later in the clinic and I said, you know, why didn't you acknowledge me? He said, I didn't want people knowing that uh, you have come to me, you know. And I said, that's just ridiculous, you know. But he said, Aparna, marriages have broken because people are not willing to uh, acknowledge that one person has an issue. So I think that there is, um, which have a social setting that we're dealing with but you know yes uh, for people who perhaps might have more in, at stake in terms of reputation perhaps you know they there could be a tendency of not acknowledging these issues I, I think what I've seen is that, you know, people who need therapy haven't gone to therapy. I've seen, you know, families where people might have taken their own lives, but it's never really discussed why they did that or what could have happened to them. So I think that um, these issues are just so common. Like, I think every time I start talking to somebody about the fact that I'm bipolar, like they'll immediately start talking about their issues and somebody in their inner circle who've had it. So it's very, very common. Where does one start creating more awareness? There are two sides to this question. One is that, is it possible that one uses one's privilege to ensure that those who don't have access to mental health facilities or uh, the right kind of infrastructure are able to access the help and the resources they need? And second is, how do we create awareness and destigmatize mental health? So there are people, for example, you know, who are mentioned in the book, like Raj Mariwala, who's a very prominent philanthropist um, in the mental health space. She's doing so much in this space. Um, and she's a great inspiration for me uh, also as a kind of role model. So I think definitely philanthropy is is a big part of it. Working as an advocate and talking about it, working on policy decisions. Uh, one of the things that I'm very keen to do is to engage with companies and corporates to, to really get them to embrace this whole idea that that's that is an arena in which mental health conversations can happen because that's a real game changer in my view. And, um, you know, that so I think that's so there's just there's so much to be done, really, um, that depending on what area that one is most interested in, one can always have impact. Yeah, I think mental health at the workplace is a particularly important conversation. And in the wake of the pandemic, there were a lot of companies who came forward, acknowledged and said that, OK, we do need to roll out counseling support or mental health support to employees. But as you also outline in your book, we have a long way to go. Do you really think that companies are equipped to handle mental health challenges? And what else, what is it that they need to do? I think it's the leadership that really needs to embrace this. Um, they need to be open about their own vulnerabilities, however idealistic that sounds. The more that leaders come out and just talk about their own issues, um, it doesn't have to be like a necessarily a mental health illness or a condition, but it just could be the challenges of stress and anxiety that we all live with. I mean, that's one thing that would really help. The other thing is that, you know, it's important for workplace itself not to be so much of a stressor because you can't tell people that, okay, I'm I'm going to stress you out hugely yeah. and then I'm going to tell you to do a yoga class and you'll be fine you know like that's just not the right pattern so somewhere that balance has to be found between the workplace itself being a competitive uh, you know organization and market-facing organization and at the same time not overstressing employees beyond a point so I think these are conversations that it's important and I think that um, with the pandemic, actually, probably employees are more uh, susceptible to have these conversations because so much has happened. 
yeah. uh, in the last two years. Do you think sensitization is changing to the extent that it should in the sense that is it changing to an extent that it positively impacts people's negotiations at the workplace on a day-to-day basis? Not yet. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm a very positive person in general, so I'm hopeful that it would. But if you just take as an in- indication, you know, this whole issue of gender and diversity, for example, and the issue on even sexuality and, you know, all of those issues are quite discussed yeah. in, in, in quite an open way. And um, there's a lot of effort being made to, you know, be sensitive to these issues. Mental health is a, it hasn't reached that level of awareness. But um, but the, the fact is that it really impacts, you know, the contribution that a person can make for the organization. And the way I look at it is that, you know, friends and family usually know about the problem. But it was when I was open about it to my workplace that I could be completely authentic. And it was a game changer because it didn't stop me from working with my employers, but I could, you know, just do a different kind of work for them. So they were able to find the right fit. They were able to accommodate. And I've been able, you know, I've been able to work for them as one of the longest uh, running contributors to them. So it's, it's worked out for everyone, actually. Another interesting point in the book is how you talk about being unable to find a sense of purpose that, okay, you felt that you're part of a business family. So, yes, I should be in business. And, you know, it's just something that's natural and something that I would do. But it did not turn out that way. And you charted a different career path for you in journalism. What was the dilemma at the time? I mean, because there are so many people out there who struggle with issues of identity and say, okay, who am I? What is my purpose in life? Or how do I sort of frame my identity when it comes to a professional uh, setting? So what are your learnings there? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because that is actually central to the book and to one of the triggers of, you know, my manic episodes because I I just think I didn't feel good enough about myself because I um, had essentially, you know, failed to work in the family business and to live up to the dream that I had constructed for myself for so many years. Um, and And I think that this is probably relevant to a lot of people who might grow up thinking that they want to be one thing and then they have to shift their sense of identity. So I, I think it is a huge, um, it's a process and it involves a lot of introspection um, and it involves a lot of um conversation with yourself. Um, That conversation for myself happened in the form of journaling that I did. People can have that conversation in different ways, but writing and thinking about your uh, is is such a good way to, you know, express your ideas. But essentially, what I would say is that um, I was much more authentic and saying that, you know, I think I had this external scorecard that I was trying to meet, which was other people's expectations of myself. I went to Harvard, I went to Oxford, I had a family business. So, yes, I should be this Gen Next person. And um, and there was uh, my expectation of myself, which was to then find something that was much more meaningful for me. Um, so it was a mix of different uh, diff- searching down different routes that led me to that to that place. It's also important to not tie your entire sense of identity with just your profession is what you say in the book. And I think that's so important because for many of us, uh, I've seen in my own social circles that, okay, if something's not going well at the workplace or in your career, it would seem as if life, that's all that, you know, life's got, there's nothing going good in life for me, etc., how do we disassociate our 
sense of identity and achievement from our professional life that's a you know it's such an important question because i think most of us are tied up with a professional identity and you start understanding that you will only be happy if you are successful in that identity you know and then what happens if you identify if you fail in to that then does that mean you're not happy you know so you have to kind of start understanding what happiness really means to you and i think i wrote in either my journal or the book i'm not sure but there are so many other ways for me to be happy right there's a, being a part of my family or being a creative thinker or the things that i do and just to try and find that in different ways and ultimately i arrived at this way that you know happiness is success success is not happiness you know to strengthen that internal scorecard that we do not generally nourish rather than that external scorecard which is something that society or the world around us so that we ourselves construct for ourselves and so how important is it to find mentors and allies who as you say listen but don't necessarily respond or react because sometimes listening is all you need so how can we go about cultivating allies so i don't think you cultivate allies for the sake of cultivating allies right these are people who are your friends they are people in your network um and they are people who might who might be mentors and and because you cultivate the friendship and you cultivate the relationship and it's reciprocal it's something that you give and something that they give you and you give back and it's a mutual a dialogue and then when you actually need their help at times then they really have come they come through for you but i think it's sort of this willingness and perhaps this is a personality trait that i've always had friends and people that i could reach out to and you know um that that people who i have i've sort of like to stay in touch with in general um so i think it's a sense of uh, being open with them and and the other thing is The other thing that I think is really important with allies and friendship is to be vulnerable with them. You know to to not to say that look I am going through this. You know and I think we often the more that I hear from people is that they are not willing to be vulnerable with someone else, you know because they're not sure where that is going to go. Um and maybe there are times when it backfires but most of the time I think people do come through. Right? about trust it's about trusting someone as you say yeah and like i, I like i have this phrase you know that courage is a is a marathon which starts with trust and when you start trusting people then you have the courage it just becomes it starts compounding and mul- multiplying and then you can reach a stage where you could maybe write a book about it a very interesting point in your book for me was how you talk about the patriarchy of mental health wherein the statistics from the 2016 uh, nimhans uh, report suggest that uh, suggest the huge gap that exists between people who require mental health treatment and people who do not have access to resources or to to doctors etc and there is another statistic in your book which suggests that 90% of people with mental health issues live with their families and 80% of caregivers most of whom are women end up facing a serious burden and a burnout so would you like to talk some more about the patriarchy of mental health so i think patriarchy operates at very different levels and many levels i mean like patriarchy in this country really um so obviously there is the fact that you know many women are caregivers and they have to look after uh, they have to look after they're the ones who are looking after somebody who's got a mental health condition in the family whether that's a child a spouse or an older person or someone else it's it falls to the woman to do that work um and that affects you know that there's a huge burnout this is very tiring work it doesn't 
you know because these are not conditions that go away they are chronic conditions then i also think that for women who have these problems themselves um uh, where do they turn to who are their allies i mean we can all imagine that kind of situation but i also think there's a very subtle kind of patriarchy which is when i went to see one of my doctors and this time i had gone without my husband and he just gave me the medication but then he said you know you shouldn't be writing about mental health and you should be looking planning your children's holidays because you're so good at that and you should you should kind of not be working so hard and you know it was really i felt awful because here's the person who really is in a position of power he's giving me the meds and prescribing them that that this is what helps me remain stable but he's being so you know demeaning and i remember just going to the bathroom and crying over that and then having this whole argument with my husband about this afterwards uh, and eventually we did change from 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 him but i'm just trying to say is patriarchy is really operates at these very very different levels you know and so it's it's just not the case that um either caregiving or getting care is very easy for women one striking anecdote in your book is how you were supposed to give a talk at an investment bank with your mother-in-law and you were having one of these episodes and you were pacing around the room and they asked you to go to the to the room that they had designated for rest and uh, they said they would send a doctor along and then the doctor asks you you know what is it what is it that's uh, that uh, uh, what's the problem and uh, you say you know i am bipolar and the doctor asks what's that you know there is a lack of awareness as we've discussed previously around mental health issues it's 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 getting better in terms of more people having conversations around it but what more do do you think we can do from say even a legislative standpoint or us as a community and where do you think your book figures in the overall big picture yeah i actually love that incident because it was so hilarious i was kind of zoned out i hadn't slept properly for days i was really i was having this reaction to this drugs but he came up and he said what's that and i said well this is one more reason to write the book um so i think there it just needs to work at all different levels if you think of all the stakeholders that are involved in something like mental health the first thing to realize is mental health is not divorced from society okay if you take an issue let's say like domestic violence okay that is like a mental health issue as much as anything you know you look at people who are at the other end of the spectrum in terms of poverty who are marginalized who are facing discrimination these are all mental health concerns so mental health is actually part of life and if you can fix the mental health issues you can fix a lot of other things right you can fix physical health also to a very large you know to a, to a large extent perhaps there are many issues many physical health issues that are prompted by mental health issues so there it's so interconnected and it is so intersectoral that i think that these are if 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 we look at it from that point of view then you can have a completely different world view of trying to deal with this rather than going through just this n- narrow lens of therapy and counseling you know um and there are many things there are many possibilities that that one could do um from either a policy perspective or a social sector perspective or from an education perspective or you know from any any of all the the main stakeholders or corporate perspective i mean all of these things uh, that there's much there's a lot that one can do um in terms of the book i i like to think that the book can be a platform for change right now we're just still getting the word out about the book it's been only a, a few months less than that um but i think i would love to drive more tangible change through the book in terms of 
changing at least the narrative of how we think and talk about mental health even if it's not the necessarily the delivery of services all all the way but at least how we talk and how we think about mental health you know if that we can if it can make a dent in that direction that would be great thank you so much for your time uh, aparna it was wonderful uh, having you around thanks thanks so much divya and thank you everyone for listening in we would love to engage with you so like share comment reach out to us and uh, we'll see you next time okay.